The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the Henry James episode of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, etc., etc. I'm recording this on Easter. Hope you're all having a nice Easter. I'm going to share a good Easter story with you. And no, it's not the one about my friend who hit a rabbit in his car. Poor little rabbit <laughs> ran across the road. My friend's little sister was in the car, too, and she started crying because my friend happened to mention that he was sure the entire basket of eggs had been smashed. As well, this story is much better than that. This one is uplifting. It's about our country's labor movement and the sugary, marshmallowy treat called peeps. A lot of people enjoy those for Easter, eating those little peeps. Apparently, the factory that makes peeps is a union factory. And there was some unrest between management and labor a few years ago, and the workers went on strike. I'm not making this up. Their chant when they were on strike was, no justice, no peeps. <laughs> Which is sheer brilliance. Speaking of which, we have a brilliant author today, Henry James. What a figure. And yet, let me let you in on a bit of a secret, my friends. I've started and restarted this episode many times. Many times this was the first one that had the Easter stories. Uh, so maybe this is the maybe this is the one that will stick. It was a three-part episode I had planned at one point, and then I just thought, why? I kept recording and talking about James and thinking, why? Why, why, why? I know there are Henry James fans out there who are saying, what do you mean, why? Why only three? There should be ten episodes. Okay, this isn't for you. You will need to get your James fix elsewhere. This episode is good. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you five ways to read Henry James. Five different people you can be when you open up that James book, or maybe even before that. Maybe even when you go to the library or go to the bookstore. Five different approaches to take to Henry James. Really, you might be five different people. They overlap, of course, because people are complex, and here we go. We already have some parallels with our subject, Henry James, because he was complex himself, and he definitely believed that human beings were complex creatures. The human personality, the human collection of wants and fears, the backgrounds, the ancestry, the desires, the decision, the psychology the decision-making, I should say. <laughs> all that that goes into the psychology and the way the psychology feeds into all of that. Complex. If there was one person in the entire history of literature who stands for the notion that people are complicated creatures, human beings are complex animals, it's probably Henry James. His brother William James was a philosopher and a psychologist, a famous one, a good one. 
And yet Henry James is as dedicated to the study of the human mind as his brother was. It's what gave him his genius and made him tower above the other novelists of his generation, his era. He makes all the others look like, well, not amateurs exactly, but he ruins it. What was the quote? Let me, let me pull it. You don't need to trust me. This is Somerset Maugham, who was no slouch himself. Quote, well, wait, he's talking about James's final novels. I should say that first. He says they, quote, make all other novels except the very best unreadable, end quote. Which is kind of ironic because a lot of people would say that for all of James's accomplishments, like I said, nobody devoted more of their life to the writing of fiction in general and novels in particular and who scrutinized themselves. I'm including Marcel Proust in that comment. James was deep into fiction, and he's like a one-man bridge between the Victorians and the moderns, both in his fiction and his commentaries on fiction and his commentaries on his own fiction. There's really no one quite like him in his body of work, and yet I think it goes too far, or at least it, it might go too far, <laughs> To say that he makes all other novels except the very best unreadable because his own novels are so famous for, for being unreadable, often. What would that mean if we took Somerset Maugham literally, that an, an unreadable novelist made all other novels unreadable? Such a novelist would essentially end novels. Right? This is a Borgesian idea, which I kind of like. We're going to hear from Borges later. He had some thoughts on James as well. But I kind of like this Borgesian idea. Imagine if a painter was so good at what he or she did, so talented and so comprehensive, that you looked at a, this painting and thought, that's it. No other painting compares. I'm not going to look at anything else. I don't need other paintings now. Only this one. And at the same time, you also thought... I can't look at this painting. It hurts my eyes. It's beyond me. <laughs> that would be it for painting. The very best songwriting. What if we had that? How about Bob Dylan? Can we say that about Bob Dylan? You hear his songs and instantly you don't want to hear any more 50s rock. No more cheap lyrics. No more bebop alula or hippie hippie shake, or any of that comic book stuff. That's for kids. You say, this is this Bob Dylan is music for grown-ups. We've moved on now. We've progressed. We're in the adult world with lyrics now. Other books aren't complex enough. I think that's what Somerset Mom was getting at. They don't treat characters with the right degree of fineness, the right degree of subtlety, they're crass and crude by comparison. Motives are too clean and straightforward, which doesn't happen in real life. Outcomes are too neat. But James is replicating life in a way that other books fail to do, kind of like Bob Dylan singing about real things, important things. And yet you hear Bob Dylan, and you don't think this makes other songs unlistenable. Sometimes you long for a different voice, right? A pop song? Maybe something clean and pure, something, some ear candy, some peeps. <laughs> no justice, no peeps. 
Maybe you want Aretha Franklin, Motown, maybe some some Paul McCartney, some bouncy tunes, some Madonna, some Prince, Kanye, Beyonce. That music is good, too. Outcast. What's wrong with a catchy tune once in a while? What's wrong with pop? Bob Dylan covered by someone with some talent, even genius, someone who can make songs sound great, a beautiful voice. That's good, right? And when you read Henry James, Contra, Somerset Mom, you might think, why am I in this world? Yes, it's better in some ways than anything else. Better than all but the very best in some ways. But is it satisfying? Is it pleasurable? It can be. Those are sometimes, sometimes the, the pleasurable is refined, like a fancy meal. And sometimes there's no pleasure there. You just want to throw the book against the wall. You might think I'm being unfair to Henry James, or you might think this is beside the point, but don't take my word for it. Like I said, I've got others. <laughs> I've got others making this case for me. Oscar Wilde said, Henry James writes fiction, quote, as if it were a painful duty, end quote. Borges, I mentioned him, he said, James's work suffers from a major defect, the absence of life. That's pretty major. Virginia Woolf, who admired James, once wrote the following in a letter. She said, quote, Please tell me what you find in Henry James. I can't find anything but faintly tinged rose water, urbane and sleek, but vulgar and pale. Is there really any sense in it? End quote. So, we could just set all that aside and do a biography and say he was born here at this such and such time. He had a family life, novel, novel, novel. March through the bibliography, middle period, masterpiece here, masterpiece there, film versions, death. Some of you want this podcast to be like that every single time, and I'm sorry that it isn't for you. <laughs> Not really sorry. It's, I'm doing the best I can. We're on a journey here, people, and I am not an encyclopedia, and that's just how it is and how it's going to be. I give you the history, but I'm interested in more than just the writers and the books. I'm interested in the readers as well. To me, literature has two parts. It has a writer and it has a reader, or a lot of readers. I love Charles Dickens, and a friend of mine recently listened to the Dickens episode, and you know what she singled out? Do you know what she wanted to email me about? She wanted to, to mention the story that I told in that episode about the serialization of the old curiosity shop and the last installment when it had come out in England and had not yet arrived in America and people gathered around the pier and they grabbed the sailors as the ship from England came in and they said, Is little Nell dead? They wanted to know. They demanded the information they were desperate for. What I love about the story is, yes, that it's about the author. Sure, we could say that. Dickens is in that collection of popular writers like J.K. Rowling and Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle and some others where their books are so eagerly anticipated and enjoyed by a big audience that the world awaits the next installment. That's fun. 
it's fun to think about how the author got to that point and and what they did once they were there. But I also love the idea of those readers thinking about them too. People living their lives in 19th century New York, maybe reading this serialization alone, the installments. Maybe they're lonely people. Maybe little Nell is helping them get through some hard times. Or maybe they're reading the story aloud to their families in front of the fire. And then... They feel so compelled by the story that they take time out of their day to go and greet the ships arriving from England. And they say, this one, here it is. This is the first one arriving that will have the news. We will find out from these people. I love that they assume that the sailors will know. <laughs> Everybody knows. Everybody's got the news. Or you find the right sailor who's also a Dickens fan. You demand to know what is happening to that girl in the story. Not the news of some great world event. Not did war break out or did they sign the treaty? Is little Nell dead? We've got to know. We can imagine our way, we literature fans can imagine our way all the way back to a campfire and a storyteller recounting the tales of epic heroes and a small child looking up at the stars, unable to sleep, wondering if he himself will be as strong and brave as the warriors in battle he just heard about, or as clever as the one who's trying to get home. Or a king. We can imagine a king hearing a story told by a master storyteller who hears the story and thinks, I must be better to my people. I can do better. And so if we think of readers being part of the history of literature, as I do, we have to reckon with this attitude toward Henry James. I can tell you who he was and what he wrote, and I can make the case for him, and I will do all that. Don't worry, we'll get there. Be patient. But the other question is, who read Henry James and what did those readers think? Who reads him today and why? So those are our questions for today, dear listeners. Who was Henry James? What were his books? And who are we when we read him? Try something new today. I'll give you some different types of readers or different types of hats that we can wear when we read Henry James. We'll explore the first of those questions, who was Henry James, after this. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to FactorMeals.com literature50 
and use code LITERATURE50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, who was this guy who fell in love with fiction and never stopped? If you close your eyes and think of Henry James, you probably see a, a Churchillian image in your mind, right? Not the squat English bulldog of Sir Winston. Someone a little longer in the face, but definitely bald, with white hair around the fringe and distinguished looking and a little dry. A bit of a fuddy-duddy, right? pale skin. My apologies to fuddy-duddies, but I'm thinking of the famous portrait of John Singer Sargent, which was commissioned for the author's 70th birthday, which I think dominates our mind's eye of Henry James, whether that's because we've seen the painting itself, which hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London, or because the reproduction of it is on the cover of one of the novels we own. The U.S. postage stamp of Henry James is similar. It's the bald slightly rotund figure in a suit in profile, watching or imagining a younger couple on a rowboat, and the young lady is holding a parasol. There's so many pictures of the balding, older Henry James that it's somewhat shocking to see him with hair. Even, even when he's a boy, we expect him to be bald. At least I do. He seems to us to have been born old, and in a way he was. He was born serious, and he wrote in heavy prose all of his life. There are a few odd moments, times of mirth, surprises. Those stand out when they happen. You think, wow. Usually, he's the sober old master, the one who always knew best, who could be imperious at times, handing down fiction like some lord bestowing us with commandments. But he was human. He laughed. Others made fun of him. He loved his dog and wept when his dog was gone. Those moments are like little chocolate chips in the enormous and sometimes a tad dry cookie of his life. Year after year of solid, workmanlike genius. But let's put the 70-year-old out of our mind for now. Let's go back to that boy, or even earlier. Let's go to the James family, which was itself pretty remarkable. Henry James was a junior. His father, Henry James Sr., was pretty famous, too. He was wealthy by inheritance. 
He was born in Albany, New York in 1811 and died at the age of 71 in 1882 in Boston, Massachusetts. His, his father, Henry the author's grandfather, was an immigrant named William who had emigrated from Ireland and he landed, the story was he landed with a Bible in his hand and nothing else, and he eventually made a fortune in business dealings, including the building of the Erie Canal. And Although he had 12 children, enough came down to Henry Sr. that he was independently wealthy. He didn't have to work, and he didn't. He instead was kind of a, an amateur theologian and philosopher who would get excited. He published some things. He would get excited by egalitarian ideas, and he dreamed of utopias. He was a friend or an acquaintance of Emerson and Thoreau and Bronson Alcott and Thomas Carlyle, and these men heard him out. He was part of their circle, though they didn't always think much of his ideas. Thoreau once called him a hearty man who was pleasant due to his good temper, but he dismissed his ideas as very crude. And in context of the whole passage, I think he meant he thought he was a little naive. Henry James Sr. believed that society failed men, even criminals, that society was to blame for criminal actions. And Thoreau thought that was a little bit naive. It's hard to disagree with either of them to some extent. Everyone is on a spectrum when it comes to this, how much society is to blame for criminal actions. And for Thoreau, at least, James was too willing to forgive the acts of criminals and blame society or their upbringing for what they themselves had done. Henry James Sr., let's stick with him for a while, he had a happy marriage to a woman named Mary Walsh, who, like him, was of both Scottish and Irish descent. They lived in Washington Square when they got married in New York City. They were married by the mayor of New York. Should give you some sense of the circles in which they traveled. The two of them had five children together. Everybody talks about the three, the famous ones, William, the oldest, who became a famous philosopher and psychologist, and Henry, of course, the author, and Alice, who became famous for her diaries. But hardly anyone talks about the other two brothers, Garth and Robertson, or Wilkie and Bob, as they were called. The Jameses lived in New York and Boston for a time, and they took many trips to Europe. This family, the five children, were close in age, all five of them born in the six years between 1842 and 1848. Henry was the second. He was born in 1843. And if you're doing some quick math about the middle of the century, that means he was of the Civil War generation. If that's what you were thinking, you were right. He was three days shy of 18 when it broke out and six days shy of 22 when it ended. But before we get there, let's talk about what kind of childhood he had before that. Was later referred to as a haphazard education. His father, who believed strongly in his own ideas, exposed the boys to a variety of, of things like science and philosophy through a series of tutors and schools that they attended in Europe and the United States. They didn't stay anywhere for very long. Meanwhile, his father was developing new ideas and publishing them when he could and bringing out editions of ideas that he found interesting. Henry and William weren't quite the product of experimental education in the way that John Stuart Mill had been, 
but it's somewhat similar. There's similarities there. I'll have a little description of it later. and you, you get a taste of what their dinner table was like. You can't really point to a single school that was the most influential. There was no place where the family settled for very long. Maybe the closest thing was either Henry's grandmother's house in Albany or one of their homes that they lived in in Manhattan. But they were in France a lot, too, and Henry was fluent in French. Interestingly, Henry stuttered when he spoke English, but not when he spoke French. Maybe that helped give him his taste for French writers, especially Balzac, whom he once called his greatest master. He was drawn to Balzac's realism and the sweep of his inquiry, which took all of society as the worthy subject for his fiction. Middlemarch was another favorite of James's for similar reasons. The sweep, the scope. We are now getting up to the Civil War. James was deemed, Henry James was deemed unfit for military service because of a back injury he had sustained when fighting a fire. Instead, he went to law school at Harvard. William was already there studying medicine. Henry soon realized that he was more interested in literature than law, but he was in a circle of friends that included both literary types and lawyer types. William Dean Howells was one of those friends, the editor and writer, and the future Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Henry was still reading novels now, like Balzac and Sir Walter Scott and Dickens. And then in 1869, he left for Europe on his own, and he kind of came into his own as an adult, I would say. He met William Morris and George Eliot and Matthew Arnold and the art critic John Ruskin. And, and Charles Dickens met him too. And he went to Rome and fell in love with that city. He wrote in a letter to William, At last, for the first time, I live here in the Eternal City. That was his letter. And now he started publishing, too. He was writing criticism and small essays about this and that, theater uh, plays he had seen and so forth. And he wrote some fiction, some short stories, and some serialized novels. His first novel, Watch and Ward, it was called. I don't know anyone who's ever read that. <laughs> Watch and Ward came out in the Atlantic Monthly when he was in his late 20s. For the next 10 years, James was prolific, coming out with several novels and a book about Hawthorne. When he was 35, his novella Daisy Miller made him famous on both sides of the Atlantic. And when he was 38, he published what most people consider his first masterpiece and maybe his greatest work, some say, certainly the most accessible of all his major novels, The Portrait of a Lady. Both Daisy Miller and The Portrait of a Lady have an, in common some similar themes. An American girl or young woman arrives in Europe and has to make her way through society where she's viewed as an upstart outsider. It's the tale of the new world meeting the old world and new money crowding its way into the established old families and the dynamism of an American culture on the rise crashing into the established old traditions of Europe. It's a very common theme for James, probably the most common theme. These are stories of love and scandal and the psychology of the individual, maybe the misunderstandings of that individual as he or she encounters a new culture. You could say it's about prejudice as well. Two cultures with preconceived notions about each other and the way that those preconceived notions affect their interactions. But let's pause here, take our last break, and come back with what I promised, 
which is to tell you the different ways to read a Henry James novel. Okay, we talked about Daisy Miller and the Portrait of a Lady. We could throw in the other works from this early period if you'd like. This is the period roughly from 1871 to 1881. There are some stories before, but you would have to be a real diehard Jamesian to get to those. But in this early period, we have Roderick Hudson, the American, the Europeans, and Washington Square. All those have their fans and advocates. I'm going to give you a top 10 later in the episode. We'll see if those make it. I think a couple of them do. And we have a dozen or so short stories and James's book on French poets and novelists and his transatlantic sketches and his book on Hawthorne. He was very prolific all of his life. And all of these books, these works that I just mentioned, will have their advocates. And we're not even really scratching the surface yet of James's work. The middle period and especially the late period are full of treasures. And James gets more difficult the further you go. He's always serious and he's always a bit dry, I find. He's kind of intense. And his later style gets tremendously difficult to read which is often attributed to his switch from writing longhand to dictation. Gore Vidal held this view. He said that now he's writing like he, in these later works, he's writing like he talked. And the problem with that was he was, quote, endlessly complex, humorous, unexpected, euphemistic where most people are direct, and suddenly precise where avoidance or ellipsis is usual. End quote. Others describe it as, it's claustrophobic or labyrinthine. They say there are some, some paragraphs you can't get through. You start a sentence and you don't know where you're going to end up and you finish the sentence and you don't know how you got there or, or what kind of journey you took. Can be difficult. There's something like 20 novels to read, 50 or more short stories and novellas, entire books of travel and art criticism and literary criticism and theater criticism. And then there are letters. And then there are the prefaces to the novels, which are sort of indispensable for a certain sort of person. They might be the most interesting works of all. So where do we begin? How far do we go? And I would say it depends on what you're reading Henry James for. Who are you, reader? Who are you when you read, and who are you in relationship to Henry James? There are at least five different ways you can read Henry James. Number one, the academic. That's one approach. James is rich territory for an academic. Hardly anyone alive has read all of James's works. So that's good for you, academic, and a lot of it is difficult. And it's all pretty interesting. James, he didn't really take a day off. <laughs> he was intense. The prose is as dense as Aristotle, some of it, but it's as serious. It's as rich. James was always a very, very serious thinker. He brought an intensity to his works that is pretty rewarding. An academic could read all of the famous novels, but also go exploring in other directions, too. That could be you. You could build a whole career around Henry James, finding some long-overlooked treasures or some connections, some drafts, some works that rhyme with other works that could give us new glimpses on a major figure. Number two, potential reader number two, the climber of Mount Everest. This is the reader who wants to challenge himself or herself. Mike Palindrome is, is a reader like this. 
who says, why stick to Salinger and Fitzgerald when Proust is out there? Why stick to Swan's Way when you can read the whole of Proust? Put that under your belt. You could say that one of the later works, like The Golden Bowl, maybe, that'd be a good one. You could say that that is your Mount Everest, and you're determined to climb it, see what it's like once you finish, once you get to the top. Or you could say that you're going to read all of the major novels of Henry James. That could be your Everest. That could be a project for you. Or even every work of Henry James, a completist, that truly would be an Everest. Good luck in that rarefied atmosphere. I'm sure the oxygen levels will make you dizzy at times and euphoric at others. Stay safe up there, climber. Number three, the dabbler. This is someone who just wants to know what all the fuss is about. So many people were influenced by Henry James. He was such a central figure in the history of novel writing. You don't have to go far before you find that a writer that you admire was an admirer of Henry James. And so, because you care about literature, you want to know what he's about. You might enjoy one of the short stories, actually. I would recommend The Beast in the Jungle, or In the Cage, or The Figure in the Carpet, or The Turn of the Screw. Those would all work well for this. The Jolly Corner, another ghost story. Or you could go a little longer and try Daisy Miller. That's pretty accessible. Or if you want to take on a whole novel, there is always The Portrait of a Lady. A couple others that are as readable as that, but that's a good one. You'll see an author who is bridging that gap between those 19th century writers, the Balzacs and Trollops and Thackerays and George Eliots of the world, and the modernists of the 20th, the Virginia Woolfs and James Joyce's. Henry James stands in the middle. Not unlike the way Impressionism bridges the gap between realist painters and modernists like Picasso. A lot of similarities there, actually. James and Impressionism. Getting back to our academic, that's a paper that writes itself. So, if you've never read anything by James or it's been a while and you feel like you should read at least one or two things so you know what he's about, those are some good choices. Maybe throw in one of the later works. Tackle that, like The Wings of the Dove, or What Maisie Knew, or The Golden Ball, so you can get a sense of James when he's being a little more difficult. Number four. Person number four. Reader number four. The fiction writer. This is an interesting person to be reading Henry James, because James himself did something I'm not sure anyone else of his stature ever did. He wrote more about his own fiction and at a remove of several decades, than anyone else that I can think of. When he set out to write a novel, he was writing to explore fiction and what it could do. He was giving himself a particular problem, a, a technique he wanted to try, or something he was trying to develop. He wasn't writing to sell but Well, I shouldn't say he wasn't writing to sell books, but he was aware of the marketplace. Maybe I should say he was not only writing to sell books, but to explore particular problems of fiction, certain topics, certain techniques. And then in 1909, when most of his novels were behind him, a new edition was brought out of all of his works, a New York edition it's called, and he revised some of the works, some of his earlier novels, and he wrote prefaces for them. And in the prefaces, he talks about the challenges that he set for himself, how he addressed those challenges, what he learned when he was writing, and so on. 
And along the way, I mean, you can read these prefaces by themselves, too. They're published in a standalone book called The Art of the Novel, where he tells you about character and plot and point of view. And you can see how experimental he got. This is still experimental within the boundaries of realism. It wasn't experimental to be experimental. He wasn't exploding the norms of fiction, trying to blow them up. He was more developing them, testing them, applying them, and assessing them. Sometimes he'll say, I don't think this was successful. I don't think this one, I think this one has structural defects. It ends up being a master class in inspiration and execution. You really get inside his mind in these prefaces. Writer can profit from this. A fiction writer, or a student, or a fan of fiction can, too. You can read the prefaces all at once, maybe along with some of his other writings about fiction. He wrote a response to a book called The Art of Fiction. He called his book The Art of Fiction as well. (laughs) That's good stuff. No justice, no peeps. Or you could read a preface of... Uh, to one of the novels, and then you can read the novel to see if you agree with his assessment. While you're reading the novel, you can look for those things that he set out as a particular challenge and see whether he met the challenge in the way that he thinks he did or didn't. This is for people who don't just want to ride along in the car. They want to open the hood and see how the engine works. That's number four. Number five, the reader for pure pleasure. This is the tough one. (laughs) (laughs) this is the tough one. Some of the works I mentioned above would work, some of the short stories, but let's not even really count this as a category. You're only going to be reading Henry James if you have your thinking cap on. I won't deny that. I'm not sure there's a single work other than maybe The Turn of the Screw, which is a ghost story, that people read for sheer pleasure. There's no real book to take to the beach There's no uh, get lost in this book. They're all a little bit difficult for that. The good news, though, I think, is that this podcast isn't really that kind of a podcast either. So chances are, if you're listening to this, you're not a pure pleasure reader, a beach reader. You might be that sometimes, but you're also somebody who likes to think about this stuff. So I myself have been all four of the readers above. I would say. I'm, I'll count myself as a pure pleasure reader, too, at times. I can I can do them all. I can wear all these hats. Although, for the academic Henry James reader, I guess I have to borrow my from my experience with my wife, who wrote her PhD dissertation on Henry James. And so I spent years reading James so I could understand what she was talking about. That's as close as to academic Henry James as I got. So, with that in mind... I don't want you to feel like you need to read all of these novels or that you even need to like Henry James's fiction in order to see his value as a figure in the history of literature or to enjoy what you can of his and admire what you can and take what you can from him. I hope it's helpful to know that. There's no required reading here at the History of Literature. So let's get back to James's biography, and then we'll talk about a few of his works. I'm just going to give you the taste of them so you can see the kind of projects he concerned himself with, fictional projects, I mean, as he set forth his new ideas and carried them out. And I just realized 
that I left out one type of reader, which is perhaps fitting that this reader will come now because it is also it also intersects with the biography of James. And that involves the question of James's sexuality. Henry James never married. And when we left off with him, he was a famous writer now. He'd written the portrait of a lady, Daisy Miller and the portrait of a lady. His mother died soon after that, just a year or so later, January of 1882. And his father, Henry James Sr., was heartbroken. And he kind of lost his will to live after that. And he died later that same year in December. In the meantime, his children all came back to visit him, try to lift his spirits. And although that helped a bit, after they left, they had to go off to Europe, so on. He fell back into a state of lethargy. He was working on one of his books and he stopped writing it and he eventually passed away. They all saw it coming. And in his will, interestingly, he skipped over William James, the eldest, and he made Henry... Henry James Jr., the second son, the executor of his estate, possibly because of their temperamental differences. William was wiry and high-strung, and Henry was younger by a year, was known as being quieter, more gentle, which is a little funny because in print, the two come across a little differently, at least to me. William, I always find William to be a little more generous, sort of eager to please closer to the reader, and Henry to be somewhat aloof and, and clotted, as if he can't quite bring himself to meet the reader halfway. And I think sometimes I confuse that for being snobbish or being uh, too refined. He's too busy staring at his polished fingernails to meet me halfway, or I am. But anyway, <laughs> Wisconsin boy. Anyway, the issue with the will, getting back to that, where Henry II born was the named the executor, led to some animosity among the children because Henry James Sr. hadn't left the money in five equal portions. One of the boys, Wilkie, had uh, taken a lot of money from Henry James, or Henry James Sr. had advanced him a lot of money when he was alive, and Wilkie had squandered it in some bad business deals, and so the father in the will gave him less. However, Henry and Alice and the other brother, Bob, felt bad about this. They felt bad that Wilkie had been a Civil War veteran and had been injured, and he was in ill health, and so they wanted to increase his share so that all five children got an equal amount. William was upset about this, and he said, well, that's easy for you, especially Alice and Henry. You don't have families of your own like I do. I could use the money. And I'm sure William being not being the executor played a part in this, that this was kind of happening without his agreement because Henry Jr., the second son, was named the executor. And while they were arguing, there was a solution to this, by the way. Henry, Alice, and Bob could have made up the difference out of their shares. They didn't have to pull it out of William's share. William felt like he needed the money. But anyway, while they were arguing about this, Wilkie died. And so the issue became moot. Henry, Henry and William, they're interesting. I mean, you could do a whole, we could do a whole show on William and Henry and their relationship. They had a long-standing, brotherly kind of relationship. They worked out 
their mastery in their respective fields, but they were also rivals at the same time. The standard line is to say that Henry was a novelist who wrote like a psychologist, and William was a psychologist who wrote like a novelist. The two were clearly rivalrous, seeking their parents' approval. William used to complain that he was popping up in Henry's fiction, barely disguised, which he didn't love. But he was also a great reader of Henry's fiction. And clearly, Henry wanted his brother's approval as well. William was often considered smarter when they were younger, although Henry had always been his mother's favorite. Really, the two of them were thrown together. They were both brilliant. They were close in age. And in addition to family connections with their shared parents and grandparents and siblings. They also had the same idiosyncratic background. No one but the James kids had had that particular assortment of tutors and European schools and trips back and forth across the Atlantic, all the moves, all the different houses they had lived in. No one else had had the intellectual and moral instruction of their father, who was kind of a force, and which governed the way they themselves came to see the world. Here's a passage that should give you a taste of what things were like with the James family. This is, <laughs> this is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who came over to have dinner one night with Henry James Sr. and Mrs. James and the kids... And listen to how he described it later. He said, quote, The adipose and affectionate Wilkie, as his father called him, would say something and be instantly corrected by the little cocksparrow Bob, the youngest, but good-naturedly defend his statement. And then Henry, Jr., would emerge from his silence in defense of Wilkie. Then Bob would be more impertinent impertinently insistent, and Mr. James would advance as moderator, and William, the eldest, would join in. The voice of the moderator presently would be drowned by the combatants, and he soon came down vigorously into the arena, and when in the excited argument the dinner knives might not be absent from eagerly gesticulating hands, dear Mrs. James, more conventional, but bright as well as motherly, would look at me, laughingly reassuring, saying, Don't be disturbed, Edward. They won't stab each other. This is usual when the boys come home. And the quiet little sister ate her dinner, smiling, close to the combatants. End quote. So, of course, in that kind of environment, with those four brothers all chattering away and the father trying to be a moderator getting drowned out by the Loud sounds of the different brothers arguing over this and that intellectual idea of the day and their hands swinging around with knives. It's not a surprise to find that Henry and William, the two oldest and two brightest, even though they're often called the Jacob and Esau of literature, it's not a surprise that they looked to one another for praise or looked at each other's works to measure themselves against. But... I was in the middle of trying to tell you about another way to read Henry James, who never married. Some say he was celibate. And the question arises naturally for any figure at that time. Was he repressed? Was he a closeted homosexual? And there is strong evidence that he was. I'm not going to answer that question here because I'm not a literary biographer and I haven't read enough to have a take. Let's put that word in quotes. There are people on both sides of the question here. I'm not sure even those closest to James knew for sure. 
And he himself might have felt confused or conflicted, so who knows what's true. I do know that he often wrote letters to young men describing his love and affection for them, and it sounds physical at times, the things that he says, although others will say, well, he talked like that with a lot of young women, too. Seems like an affectionate guy in his letters. I also know that after he died, his family bent over backwards to excise certain passages from his letters as best they could, trying to keep them from the public. They chose his biographer carefully, and a lot of what they tried to keep from the public related to comments about men that they thought would be misinterpreted. But maybe misinterpreted should be in quotes, too. Maybe the, what the public would think would not be a misinterpretation. Maybe it would be the public coming to realize the truth. We could probably thank, and I'm definitely putting thank in quotes, we could probably thank the restrictions of the 19th and early 20th centuries when homosexuality was viewed as an abomination and people went to prison for it. You can probably thank that for whatever mystery we still have about James. Maybe he was gay, but carefully kept it from the public. Maybe he was gay, but doggedly refused to let himself act upon it. Maybe he wasn't celibate, but we don't happen to have the evidence of whatever sexual relationship that he had had. Or maybe he was celibate and lived with shame or self-denial or whatever inside him kept him from acting upon any sexual feelings he felt, if he felt them. It's hard not to think of James as being somewhat arid in his prose sometimes and ungenerous. We hear the echo of Borges in our mind saying there's no life there. We hear the Rosewater quote. It's hard not to feel a little sorry for James for being in pain or limited in his personal life for whatever reason, but there's a, a way to combine these two into one. I mean, And by that I mean our, our feeling of mystery about James's life and the prose style that sometimes frustrates us, which brings us to reader type number six, the fascinated explorer of Henry James himself. Eve Sedgwick sets this forth in her book, or she set this forth in 1990 in her book, Epistemology of the Closet, kind of a landmark study, which set forth James as a gay writer who was trying so hard to remain in the closet that he ended up writing in, in the opaque prose style that he wound up using as he disguised his truest feelings and maybe tamped them down as well. Maybe he was struggling with those feelings, not wanting to let himself either show his true feelings or maybe not letting himself feel them either. It's a fascinating way to approach James, to look among this rich body of work, to read it with that in mind, that it's, that it's covered with secrets and the submerged personality of the author himself. Life was inside him, bursting, trying to get out and never quite could, and it was locked too tight. And a great fan of Henry James, the Irish writer, Cullum Tobin, says that this reading of James brings James to life in a way. It updates him. It makes him a contemporary of ours. It makes him more interesting than the dusty old genius who was, in Virginia Woolf's phrase, like the faintly tinged rose water. This is Tobin's quote. He says, Sedgwick's argument is dense and brilliant and at times 
far-fetched and unconvincing, but it removed James from the realm of dead white males who wrote about posh people. He became our contemporary. Thus, James's artistry, his skill at creating scenes and drama, his sly sexuality, his wonderful prose style, his genius with form and tone and structure make him a subject of fascination not only for ordinary readers, but also for students and teachers of literature, and indeed for many, if not all, of the novelists who have come after him. James's dying words, tell them to follow, to be faithful, to take me seriously, continue to resonate a hundred years after his death. End quote. In this reading, James isn't a mechanical fiction genius cranking out examples of his craft, but a, dyna- a dynamic genius, a person, a tormented soul, the great observationist, is that the right word? Uh, the great observer and visionary, struggling to limit himself because he feared where his true spirit would take him. Borges said there was an absence of life in James's novels. Well, maybe it would be better to say that there was a life-sized hole that James circled around and avoided and stretched to cover. And by passing through this hole ourselves, we find ourselves in a new world where our interest in James the person and the author with the secret helps to animate the works for us. Sometimes fiction is all we need, what's there on the page, and sometimes adding more layers to the fiction helps. So... Keep that in mind as you approach these works as one of our six possible readers we have now, and maybe I'll add another bonus reader, (laughs) number seven, which is someone who reads because you like the films, of which The Wings of the Dove and the always amazing Helena Bonham Carter is high on my list. Hollywood goes through James periods sometimes, like it does with E.M. Forster and Jane Austen and Dickens and and they discover there are good plots there, even as James increasingly made the readers struggle with the prose to find those plots. So you can be one of those seven readers or some combination of those readers, and then plunge in. Here are the major novels. Here's my top 10, and I'll give you what they're about in a single sentence or two so you can decide what you would like best. I've taken some of these summaries from various internet sources, although I couldn't find a good one that I wanted to use. So what I have here is kind of a hodgepodge, some notes I scribbled down. I've read all these books, I think. I'll tell you if I haven't. And I'll include some short stories too, which I've definitely read. Some of the best. So here's a quick top 10 of the novels in chronological order. Number one, Roderick Hudson. An art connoisseur offers to pay for a sculptor to travel to Rome to help his talent mature. This is early, James. Not really as rich as some of the ones we'll get to soon. But it's kind of before his the more the most difficult side of his prose kicked in. So that's one. I don't know. I listed first, like I said, it's chronological, but I probably wouldn't start there. Number two, Washington Square. This is one James didn't like himself, but it's one of his most popular works. It's been compared with Jane Austen, and it has a narrator who talks directly to the reader at times, which is kind of charming. It's about a daughter who wants to marry the wrong man. And a father who sees it happening, sees it unfolding, and the conflict that this raises between the two of them. Number three, The Portrait of a Lady. We talked about that before. The first true masterpiece of James's novels, Isabel Archer, a spirited young American woman, heads to Europe to affront her destiny. That's Henry's word, 
upfront, which includes deciding which suitor to marry and how to balance independence and freedom with economic security or insecurity. Number four, the Bostonians. This one has a Mississippi lawyer who comes to visit his cousin in Boston. It's kind of an interesting take on the usual set of James characters. He's a conservative, a Civil War veteran, and he's taken by his cousin to a feminist lecture. And he's irritated by the speech, but fascinated by the speaker. And the speaker is also fascinated by him. They have a kind of odd coupling, which creates some friction and fireworks for the two of them and for those around them. Number five, the Princess Casamassima. This is one about a smart young Londoner who becomes involved in political violence, a.k.a. a terrorist plot. It has a recurring character from one of James's earlier works. He said she was too interesting to only see her once. It's kind of an interesting book. Not one of James's best, I don't think, but maybe if you're looking for James writing about a terrorist plot, this one might appeal to you, The Princess Casamassima. Number six, The Spoils of Poynton. This is pretty entertaining. A widow doesn't want her son to marry a crass woman. So she and she tells a more sensitive and tasteful woman about it, hoping that they will fall in love, that this tasteful woman will fall in love with her son instead. Meanwhile, the son asks the more tasteful woman to try to get his mother to stay out of his business. <laughs> it's all about the, the spoils of Poynton are, are the artworks he's going to inherit. Number seven. Now we're getting to a real technical. This is for those of you who want to re write fiction. This is one to take a look at. A technically proficient novel, What Maisie Knew. Tells the story of a custody battle through the point of view of the young girl who's being wrestled over as her parents and caretakers are involved with arguments and affairs. We see all of this through her sensibility through the eyes, through what Maisie knew. That's the James, uh, you read the preface to that and then the book. Number eight. Now the final three here are kind of the three biggies. Number eight, The Wings of the Dove. Two Londoners who are in love with one another, but who are themselves poor, meet a rich young American woman who is dying and who falls in love with the man. James didn't like this one himself or he thought it was flawed this is the one he said had a defective structure. It didn't live up to the plan he had in mind for it. But critics kind of disagree. They generally place it among James's best. The Modern Library, when they ranked their 100 greatest novels of all time in the late 1990s, had it as number 26, which is the highest of any Henry James book on that list. The Ambassadors, the next one on my list, which I'm going chronological, but the next one... Uh, the Ambassadors was number 27 on that list. So James came in 26 and 27, The Wings of the Dove and The Ambassadors. This one, The Ambassadors, is about a more or less poor American. He's sort of average, middling means, middle age. He's sent to Paris by his wealthy fiance to bring back her son, Chad. And the, the implication here is that maybe the marriage that this guy is going to have with the fiancé is not going to be pulled off if he doesn't bring Chad home to work in her business. The American, whose name is Lambert Strether, finds that Chad has changed since arriving in Europe, 
And as he gets to see those changes, he starts to find that Europe might be a place that could change him as well. A lot of romantic and sexual entanglements here as the different parties involved wrestle with duty and desire. And number 10, which was number 32 on that list, this is a lot of people's favorites, including some people like Iris Murdoch and and other authors who came after, uh, was The Golden Bowl, which is... So now we have the three that were the latest chronologically are the three that rank the highest. I think this is pretty close to how critics tend to see James's work. The Portrait of a Lady might be the most accessible masterpiece, and What Maisie Knew might be the most technically proficient, and others might be preferred for one reason or another. But these three are kind of considered the three best. They're, they're the hardest to read, but they're the best. The Golden Bowl is about four characters, a father and his wife, and a daughter and her husband, and their relationships, the four of them, their relationships with one another. The writing here is at times gets close to modernism. There's passages that anticipate Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and their stream of consciousness. And so if you start with The Portrait of a Lady and you end with the golden bowl, you will see that bridge that I was talking about, the bridge between the Victorian novelists and the modernists. You'll see it enacted in James's development as a novelist himself. James himself thought that the golden bowl was one of his best books. It seems to be the one that he was happiest about. Okay, and now I said I'll give you some shorter works, also in chronological order. You can read any or all of these to see James's mind at work and get a taste of his fiction. Daisy Miller, I talked about this one already. That's my number one. Beautiful American girl, Daisy Miller, is in Switzerland and Rome, flirting, causing a scandal. It's the new world meets the old, crashes against the old, crashes the party, so to speak. Number two, the figure in the carpet. This one is pretty good. I like this. A narrator meets his favorite author, and becomes obsessed with figuring out the secret meaning or intention of the author's works. Kind of a modern idea, right? Aren't you thinking of those obsessed fans who go knocking on the door of rock stars like John Lennon? There's a famous uh, video of that where he shows up and says, "What did you? weren't you talking to me when you said this? And so this is, uh, James was there ahead of all this with the figure in the carpet. The obvious pairing here for you academics is with the Sedgwick argument I mentioned above, where you uh, are reading Henry James, looking for clues, looking for examples of places where he was maybe trying to skirt his actual feelings, submerge some of his own private affairs, You could compare that, compare yourself looking for those with the narrator here who's looking for his secret meaning in his favorite author's works. The undergraduate papers will write themselves. Number three on my list, The Turn of the Screw, one of the most famous ghost stories ever written. It's about a governess who takes care of two children and starts to believe that the grounds of the estate that they're on are haunted. Number four, this is a nice Nifty little story, In the Cage. 
A woman in London who sits in a telegraph office, that's the cage, starts to learn more about her customers from the telegrams they ask her to send, maybe more than she wants to know. Number five, the beast in the jungle. I love this one. This is James at his best. This might be my favorite in all of Henry James. Well, I like the Wings of the Dove too. A woman meets a man she knew from 10 years ago. And she remembers an odd thing about him. He has this belief that his life will be defined by some great catastrophe or some spectacular event that lies in wait for him like a beast in the jungle. Doesn't even want to get married because he's worried about subjecting his wife to the sensational fate that, that lies in store for him a fascinating way to live your life. It's a great story. And I'll throw in number six, The Jolly Corner. It's another ghost story. This one's about a man who leaves New York and comes back 33 years later, visits his boyhood home, kind of becomes obsessed with nostalgia, and he thinks that there's an American there, and he starts to sort of see the American who's roaming around the house at night and so on as the ghost of who he himself might have been. And he stayed and he tries to confront him. That's a good story as well. So I hope that gives you a sense of the breadth of James, the inventiveness, some of his main themes and what the characters are like. This wasn't cookie cutter stuff, even though it's easy to think of James and think, oh, right, Americans going over to Europe and and they go to visit museums and they learn something about themselves and, and so on. It was more than that. He was coming up with rich plots and intricate situations, and some truly exceptional ideas. He was a fan of fiction. That sounds trite, but he, I mean it. He was devoted to it, and he agonized over what he was writing. He had ideas and characters and observations and an incredible work ethic. He was prolific, to say the least. And in spite of some of the problems with his style, in addition to Gore Vidal, he's been criticized by... Nabokov and many others, he's been praised by a lot of people too. Not for his style necessarily, although there is something appealing about his style, that it's as detailed as it is. But more than that, he's, he's praised for his characters and the situations he puts them in and the complexity he generates for their development and sometimes the satisfying decisions that they're forced to make or that they make the consequences of those decisions, and the resolution of their character arcs. I'm going to give the final word to a contemporary and friend of James. Wait, I forgot to mention some of the other friends and acquaintances of Henry James. That's an important part of, of knowing who he was, is who he spent time with. In addition to all the ones I mentioned for uh, friends of his father, those Bostonians and New Yorkers who came to dinner, like Emerson and Thoreau and so on. There were the ones I mentioned whom James met on his 14-month trip to Europe when he fell in love with Rome, that trip. And I guess I mentioned some school friends of his too, Oliver Wendell Holmes and so on. But I haven't mentioned yet that he also, when he was in Europe, when he was in Paris, he met Zola and Maupassant and Turgenev. And then he was also friends with Henry Adams and Robert Louis Stevenson and Constance Fenimore Wilson and Edith Wharton and many others as well. And I also just realized before we end here 
that I didn't mention at all, Henry James's middle period and his mostly unsuccessful attempts to write plays, what made him turn to drama and how that went, didn't go so well. We have more topics to cover with Henry James, don't we? We're at the end of our time, but we're, we're, we have more episodes we could do. Maybe we'll do one just on that dramatic period where he was trying to get a play on stage. It's a pretty fascinating period for James. The interim between uh, the early period culminating with the portrait of a lady and the later period, like the three major novels at the end. Okay. I wanted to give the last word to a fellow novelist who was also in this gap between the Victorians and the modernists. James wasn't the only one who was, who was creating that bridge. This one, this guy was also in the same general period as the impressionist painters. He was also a transplant to England and he was born about five years after Henry James. I'm talking about Joseph Conrad, who wrote about Henry James, quote, After some 20 years of attentive acquaintance with Mr. Henry James's work, it grows into absolute conviction, which, all personal feeling apart, brings a sense of happiness into one's artistic existence. If gratitude, as someone defined it, is a lively sense of favors to come, it becomes very easy to be grateful to Henry James. The favors are sure to come, the spring of that benevolence will never run dry. The stream of inspiration flows brimful in a predetermined direction, unaffected by the periods of drought, untroubled in its clearness by the storms of the land of letters, without languor or violence in its force, never running back upon itself, opening new visions at every turn of its course through that richly inhabited country its fertility has created for our delectation, for our judgment, for our exploring. It is, in fact, a magic spring. End quote. A magic spring. However we get there, whether it's when we're young or old or as an academic or a writer exploring the craft of fiction or a literary spelunker looking for submerged meanings, or just a general reader who's read a lot and is still thirsty and is looking for something that only the master can satisfy. James is there, like a long day's journey that takes our time and patience, but that ends with the excitement of an arrival somewhere new, a moment for repose, a clearing in a forest, a setting sun, and a magic spring. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode on Henry James. My thanks to you for joining me on this part of our journey. We will be back next week with some more. Well, we don't know yet, do we? Maybe Thucydides. Got to check in with Mike Palindrome on that. He and his online friends have been reading up a storm. They read all of Thucydides. We'll check in with him on how that went. We are part of the Podglomerate, thepodglomerate.com, and we're teamed up with LitHub Radio. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.